0: Please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua 13. We're actually going to read, like last week, chapters 13 and 14. And so, again, like last week, we will have a New Testament reading. <clears throat> These chapters are best considered together tonight. So here we are, Joshua 13 and 14. Okay. Let's seek God's blessing once again as we prepare to read his word. Our Father in heaven, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we ask that it would pierce our hearts tonight by your almighty power so that we would um, hear you in the scriptures, listen to your voice, and believe and obey what the Bible teaches. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 13 and 14. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And those of the Avim, in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Meara, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal God, below Mount Hermon, to Lebohamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Mizraphoth Mayim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond the Jordan, eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medeba, as far as Dibbon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Gesherites and Maacathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Seleika, Sal- all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashlaroth and in Edre. He alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim, These Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maakathites, but Geshur and Maakath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben according to their clans. So their territory was from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by Medeba with Heshbon, and all its cities that are in the tableland, Dibon and Bamoth Baal, and Beth Baal Maon, and Jahaz, and Kedemoth, and Mepha'ath, Mephaath, and Kiriathayim, and Sibmah, and Zereth Shahar on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshimoth, that is, all the cities of the table land, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated, and the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rechem, and Zor, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sihon, who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed by the sword by the people of Israel, among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites to Oror, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramath Mizpah, and Betonim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Debir, and in the valley... Beth-Haram, Beth-Nimrah, Sukkoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Kinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh, according to their clans their region extended from Mahanaim through all bashan the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, and half Gilead and Ashtaroth and Edre, the cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Machir, according to their clans. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Chapter 14. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, when which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, For the nine and one half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them, for the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And no portion was given to the Levites in their land, but only cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses they allotted the land. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, And I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And the land had rest from war. Amen. You may be seated. The other day, uh, Margaret asked me, Daddy, what would you do if a long-lost relative died and left you a billion dollars? So we talked about it a little bit, but I said, of course, we don't have any billionaire relatives, so I guess it's not going to happen. She said, but what if it's such a distant relative that you don't even know you're related to them? Like, well, I suppose it's, anything's possible. I like the way she thinks. I mean, who wouldn't love to find out one day that they had just come into this ginormous inheritance? It would be amazing. Now, as we get into these middle chapters of Joshua, I am, I am not even going to try to convince you Uh, that these are the most gripping, exciting chapters in the Bible. Um, But why are they here? The reason is that Israel in these chapters is coming into their inheritance. You think how excited you would be if somebody died and left you a billion dollars. You understand what's happening in these chapters Israel's faith is becoming sight here. What the Lord has promised to them is finally coming true and they are seeing and walking over and taking possession of all that God said was coming. And now it's finally here. This is the home that God had promised them and now they're finally getting to move in, as it were. So I, I hope that as we walk through these two chapters tonight and some of the chapters to come that, that we'll get, if we can just get even a little bit of a taste of what it was like for Israel to experience coming into their inheritance, then, then I hope that through that we may be able to get just a little taste to, of what it's like to long for our own inheritance. To, to treasure Every square inch of it, in all of the in all the details of what God has in store for us in Christ, as you can just imagine, spending eternity poring over every detail of the new heavens and the new earth when our when our faith, like Israel's, does one day become sight instead of faith, because as Ephesians Ephesians one says, and we'll talk about this later, in Christ you have obtained. An inheritance. So let's uh, let's divide up these chapters before we begin with an outline. The first point tonight is going to be unfinished business. That'll be verses 1 through 7, of chapter 13. Second will be a beautiful inheritance, uh, verse 8 through chapter 14, verse 5. And then third will be a courageous faith, chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. Okay, so unfinished business, a beautiful inheritance, and a courageous faith. All right, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. All right, so to begin with, um, throughout the the book of Joshua, and the middle part in particular, there are kind of two dimensions, we could say, of the conquest that that the historian uses um, to draw uh, this historical picture. There is the, the comprehensive dimension of the conquest, we could say, on kind of one direction. And then there's the incomplete dimension of the conquest. And both are going on at the same time and being revealed at the same time To us in the book. So the conquest is both comprehensive and incomplete from kind of two different points of view in different senses. And chapters 10 through 12 from the last couple of sermons emphasize the comprehensive dimension. Um, you remember, how it said Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. Chapter eleven, verse twenty-three. Well, by the end of chapter twelve, um, Israel has—we can say Israel has conquered the land of Canaan. They've done it; it, it is done. The, the land has been conquered. They now have—you could say—hegemony over the whole heartland of. The promised land of, of Canaan, uh, in addition to also uh, Gilead and other points to the east, on the eastern side of the river Jordan. And so, um, that's this one that's the compreh- comprehensive dimension. The Lord has kept his promise to Israel, he has given Israel the land. And then, on the human side of the covenant, well, Joshua has been obedient, the people have been obedient, they've carried out God's instructions, they have uh, carried out this comprehensive conquest and as a result, said the land has rest from war. But along with that comprehensive dimension, there's also this incomplete dimension, which is being emphasized here at the beginning of chapter 13. So yes, Israel now occupies Canaan. Yes, they now have hegemony in the region. Uh, Yes, it can be truly said that God has given them the promised land. Uh, But there are still some details that need mopping up. And what this ought to have been, would be a fairly straightforward just, uh, well, just that, a mopping up operation to carry to completion what has already happened in principle, the victory over the land. There are these regions around the edges of the heartland that haven't been occupied yet, and then there are also places within the heartland uh, that still have these Canaanite holdouts that have yet to be reached. So verses 1 through 6 cover those Uh, regions around the edges um, while we get hints of those places within the heartland in places like verse 13 and other places scattered through the next few chapters. Well, if if you're even a little bit familiar with the story of Joshua and then followed by Judges, uh, the, the sad part of this history is that after the initial great successes and the initial exemplary faithfulness of Israel in carrying out those uh, early campaigns of the conquest where um, they see all of those early victories realized. After that, what you see is Israel actually not doing a very good job of following up those victories, not doing a very good job of following through on their obedience, of extending the conquest outwards towards those um, bordering territories or Inwards, either towards those Canaanite holdouts, they do not complete their mission, and that failure to carry it all the way to completion ends up being the root of all kinds of terrible problems um, in the coming generations. And it's really important that we understand this: um, that this is that that that, that failure to complete uh, those that mopping up of the conquest. Um, that failure is not uh, because of any failure on God's part. It's not because the Lord's promise didn't extend that far. There was a problem with Israel's obedience. And the Lord clearly tells Joshua, here you can see in verse 6, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, after he's talked about the territory of the Philistines and then northwards up to the Sidonians um, and Lebanon and so, so forth. Um the Lord, in other words, is, is ready and willing to continue to fight for Israel as he has been doing so far. But as history drags on and Israel is, is sluggish to go into those unconquered places, uh, things up getting, end up getting a lot more complicated. Israel um, actually does not end up dispossessing the Philistines. They do not end up extending their borders northward to Lebanon Um, either in the time of Joshua or in the time of the Judges. It simply doesn't happen because the people are not willing to follow through. Um, Now, if we fast forward to David and Solomon, um, under David, Israel finally does subdue the Philistines once and for all. Uh, In fact, David's power does end up reaching a high watermark that includes control northwards as well, all the way to the Euphrates River. Um, And so when you read David's history, you should understand that as being uh, David as David making good on the conquest in a way that Israel had not done yet up to that time. Um, And so that's important for understanding the kingship of David in light of Moses and in light of Joshua. But but for now, as long as we're in Joshua and Judges, we're going to see instead, very sadly, the bitter consequences from Israel um, stopping most of the way there instead of um, following through all the way to completion. But starting at the end of verse 6, um, the Lord kind of turns a corner here in his instructions to Joshua. So yes, there is still some land to be conquered, but for now, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. So he's telling Joshua, I want you to, to divide this land, whole promised land, for an inheritance to the tribes. And um, And the next several chapters, then, are going to detail that division of the land. It's going to show exactly which territory was assigned to which tribe. Psalm 16. It's a pretty familiar psalm. And in the middle of it, it contains a few very beautiful lines that I'm going to read to you in a second. And these lines um, have a nice ring to them. But... If we don't think about the historical context behind them, and you really try to think, but what does that mean? You can think, actually, that just kind of sounds like kind of jargon, this kind of Bible-speak that's kind of vague. It doesn't really mean anything very concrete to us. So listen to this. When David says, "'The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. "'You hold my lot. "'The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. "'Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance.'" Okay, so you think okay cup I, I, okay, I understand what that means it's like something good to drink but what's a what's a portion what's what's a lot what is a lot what are what are lines you think, are the lines like on a piece of paper what line, what kind of inheritance is he talking about It sounds pretty in the poetry but but what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean and what can it possibly mean for me as I try to think about how to bring that psalm to bear on my own life? Well, that's one of the reasons that these middle chapters of Joshua are so important for us to understand what's really going on here because monotonous, maybe though they may seem when we encounter them or hear them read publicly, what what these chapters do is they take what's otherwise a very general notion of promised land, this kind of somewhere out there there's a promised land. Well, what these chapters do is they take that general hope, and they make that hope concrete. They show us that that promised land involves actual places where real people are going to live. Here's your home, it's saying. And and, and then here's your home over here, in this other place is where you're going to live. And your children are going to be born and grow to adulthood, and their children are going to live, and generations are going to grow up here, and the nation's going to thrive. In this particular place, look at the vista that you can see from here. Look how beautiful the sunrise is coming over that hill. Look how beautiful those woods are. You know, it's this it's a it's a real place, not an idea of a promised land. Here are the boundary lines for your family. See that idea of lines from Psalm the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, it's talking about those boundary lines that are being outlined here. We can note a couple of things in the remainder of chapter 13. Um, First of all, once again, like last week, um, we have to go backwards before we can go forwards in chapter 13. Uh, Back to the east side of the Jordan River, uh, where Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh decided way back under Moses that this is where they wanted to settle. Um, back in that region where Israel defeated Sihon and Og, but before they crossed over the Jordan River under Joshua. Be- long be- well, not long before, but before the Battle of Jericho, before the death of Moses. And that's what's covered in chapter 13. This um, specific list of specific allotments of land starts over there to the east. It starts with those two and a half eastern tribes. And um, I'm not going to go back over everything I said about that last week, Um, where we reviewed all of that history. Uh, A second thing, though, here in chapter 13, a second thing that we should stop and notice is uh, what's said about Levi that's different from all the other tribes as we go through here. Um, Again, though, this is simply carrying forward what Moses wrote about, um, what what the Lord promised back in the books of Moses. Uh, But now it's actually being put into practice. Well, the Lord had told Moses was that when you come into the land, all the tribes are going to get their inheritance, these regions that they're going to control and live in, but the tribe of Levi was the one tribe that was not supposed to get a particular allotment of territory. There were going to be cities for them to live in, so it's not like they had no place to live. There'd be cities scattered throughout the land of the other tribes where the Levites would live, and they were going to be provided for partly through farming right around those cities, partly through... Um, the sacrifices that would be offered by all the tribes at the tabernacle and partly go to feed the Levites. But the Levites weren't to get any um, swath of territory on their own. So why was that? And you can remember from the books of Moses, and it's repeated here in chapter 13, the reason is that that out of all the tribes, the Levites were supposed to symbolize something for the entire nation. They are supposed to symbolize for everybody in Israel really the, the ultimate and a higher meaning of the land itself. See, receiving the land as an inheritance from God, was a symbol to Israel. We could almost say it was a sacrament almost, you could say, of of the the deepest spiritual privilege that Israel had. The, In covenant with God, the privilege of knowing God himself, the gift of the land was always designed to point beyond itself, to point them to the giver of the land. And that was true for all 12 tribes. But with Levi, it was especially clear because the tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi received no land, but that didn't mean that they got nothing from the Lord. No, it was symbolizing what that gift of land meant for everyone, that all of Israel ought to be looking beyond the land, looking past the land. In fact, we could say looking through the land. Again, in that kind of sacrament, looking through the land to the one who gave it to them. They should be desiring to embrace him, their covenant God, their covenant king. That's the significance when verse 33 says, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. Just as he said to them. Okay, now as we look back on all of this land allotment from the perspective of the New Testament, we should remember, as I mentioned earlier, what Ephesians 1 tells us about our inheritance in Christ. And, of course, God hasn't promised you um, any real estate in the Middle East uh, any more than he's promised you a billionaire uncle who's going to leave you a lot of money in his will. No, what he has done, though, is he's promised you something much better than that, which in substance is much the same as the spiritual reality he was holding out to Israel. Because Ephesians one eleven says, In him, that's speaking of in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And he goes on to explain what that means. We've in- obtained an inheritance in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the fir- first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. See what Paul's doing here. He's, he's teaching us to hope for a future inheritance, just like Israel was supposed to do. They left Egypt, and all through the wilderness years, they were to hope for a future inheritance, for all the blessings of glory that we're going to experience after the resurrection when Jesus comes back. But Paul's also showing us something else. He's showing us that we already actually have a portion of that inheritance in hand, right now, already, in the present. We have um, a guarantee, or we could say a down payment from God. And what is that? Or more properly, who is that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Pentecost poured out on the church. That is God's guarantee or down payment of that future inheritance. Okay, so let's think about this in light of Joshua 13. Remember the tribe of Levi was supposed to symbolize for Israel that the best thing to inherit, the very best thing you can inherit from God, it's not the land, it's him. It's God Himself for the Lord to be your inheritance, and see, that's what the Lord is doing for us. Is He has given us the Holy Spirit now? What has He done in pouring out the Spirit? God has given us not something; He's given us lots of things, but that's not the guarantee of our inheritance. Guarantee of our God has given us in the Holy Spirit. He's given us Himself. He's poured out Himself upon us given us his his presence as the enduring possession of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God with us, not only in the incarnation, but also in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that we can pray with Psalm 16, knowing that God is with us, that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup that the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. And indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. Why not? Because of the stuff that we've gotten from God or even the stuff that we're going to imagine getting in the final future. It's because we have God himself. He has given himself to us in Christ. He has given himself to us by his spirit. I love the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken by John Newton. And especially love the second verse where it says, See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well, supply thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. And it goes on. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage grace, which, like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age? the streams of living waters are are wonderful and the abundant provision of God is wonderful. That river of grace flowing to to quench our deepest soul thirst, all those things are wonderful. And all of the concrete expressions of that in our lives and in the fellowship of the saints and the, the future hope of the new heavens, the new earth, and all those things that God has given us, all the things that God is going to give us, all those things are wonderful blessings. But the best part is that last line. Where it compares all those things to the Lord, the giver, who never fails. Because it's God Himself. That's the ultimate privilege of being a Christian, it's that you have Him. Well, verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 14, there's another transition. It's a transition from the inheritance for the tribes on the east side of the Jordan. To the back to the West Side Story, like we talked about last time, the Jericho side of the Jordan River, the Jerusalem side of the Jordan River. Significantly, down in the tribe of Judah. We're back now, back in the heartland of Canaan, and uh, notably, um, the first tribe to be mentioned in this new section is the tribe of Judah. And we're going to get to the the main distribution of land to the tribe of Judah in chapter fifteen. That's what chapter fifteen is all about. Uh, that's next time. But first, uh, there is kind of an introductory story to um, that. that it, it introduces Judah's allotment, but more than that, it introduces all the tribe's allotment in this heartland. And that is the story of Caleb. Um, so, what, what's happening is history is zooming in on this one person who represents sort of the ideal. The ideal for the attitude of a faithful Israelite engaging in the continued following through of the conquest of the land. This is what Israel is supposed to do. Caleb represents the ideal for how Israel is supposed to follow up this conquest. Okay, So, background for Caleb. This is very familiar to a lot of you, but uh, you remember back in the book of Numbers, back when Moses sent the 12 spies up into the land to come back and tell Israel whether they should go up or not, scope it out. And of course, the ten spies came back and they convinced Israel not to go up and take the land. They were afraid. They thought it would be too dangerous. But of course, there were the two spies who came back with a good report. Two faithful spies. Two spies who demonstrated um, their trust in God's promises. And they came back to Israel and said, Come on, guys, we can take them. Let's go on up and take the land. But of course, they lost ten to two. Um, That was... 45 years ago, by the time we get to Joshua 14, and of course those two spies were who? They were Joshua, this Joshua, and Caleb, this Caleb, these two men. And now it's 45 years later, Um, and back then Caleb was 40 years old, he was in his prime, now uh, Caleb is 85, he's an old man, but he's clearly still ready to go here. Um, All of these years later, not only has Caleb's uh, strength not waned, according to him, his faith has not waned either. He is still trusting implicitly in the promises of God, except that this time it's not just God's promises to Israel in general. Uh, God has made Caleb a particular, personal promise. Back in Numbers 14, the Lord said, um, listen, nobody in this generation is going to enter the promised land because they refused to go up. Now they're not going to see it. They're all going to fall in the wilderness, except for who? Except for Caleb. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Uh, Deuteronomy 136 repeats that promise, and it specifies that the very land that Caleb spied out, the land that his feet walked on 45 years before, that's the land that Caleb is going to be able to um, inherit with his family. And now he receives that privilege. In fact, I love the way Caleb specifically remembers the Anakim. One of the big reasons that Israel didn't want to go up and take the land was because, because the Anakim are there, and they, they think that we're like grasshoppers. They'll be able to squash us. And it's almost here like Caleb is, is just hoping that there might still be some Anakim left there in Judah in the future land of Judah, when he says, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb and so on. And why was it? It's because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. So Caleb is this model of faith and faithfulness. I just have to share this. Ralph Davis, I've I've quoted Ralph Davis many times when we've been going through Old Testament historical books. um, I find him a really helpful commentator. He has a great illustration on this passage, it's a little bit silly, but it, but helpful, I think, in its own way. Um, you may have heard this one before about the American shoe company that sends a businessman over to a, a particular African nation to explore it as a potential new market, and he sends a message back saying he's coming home because there's, there's just no way this is going to work. Nobody over here wears shoes. And so he goes home, and they send another businessman over to see if he can do any better, and he sends a message back saying you've got to send me all the inventory you can. This is the best market I've ever seen. Nobody over here has shoes. <laughs> and uh, Ralph Davis sees in Caleb that second man's attitude toward the challenges of the conquest and towards his hope at the promises of God and what the Lord is able to do in the face of imposing Challenges. Very difficult circumstances. See When the rest of Israel was saying, there's just no way we can take over Canaan. There's Anakim there. There's too many of them. They're too big. When Israel was saying that, Caleb was the one saying, look, guys, this is just one more opportunity for the Lord to show us his glory and for the Lord to help us for the Lord to keep his word to us as he gives us the inheritance that he's promised to us. And now here he is 45 years later with the same Faith and the same faithfulness. And he at last is receiving what he's been looking forward to this whole time as Caleb's faith in particular now becomes sight. And what a fitting conclusion this is to the life of this man who wholly followed the Lord. Now I suppose I could wrap up this sermon by telling you to go out and be like Caleb, everybody. Everybody. And yeah, we, we should be. We should be like Caleb, right? We should desire to have this courageous faith, this willingness to stand alone, as one commentator calls it, that, that Caleb showed when he when he stood up to those other ten spies. Uh, we, we ought to have this fearless trust in God's promises that led this 85-year-old man to, to storm the gates of Hebron. Right? But of course, when we actually look at our hearts, uh, think we so often see, at least if you're like me, you often see much more the reticence and the fearfulness of the ten spies, of those Israelites who, who never did press on and finish taking the land, much to our shame. Our hearts are often a lot more like that first shoe salesman than second, and you can imagine What a difference it could make if we simply would take God at His Word. If we simply would trust that He will really do what He says when we venture out in faith and obedience to carry out that mission and the and the calling that He's given to us as a church, trusting in His promises. But you see, what I want to impress on you as we wrap up tonight is that in all of this, even in our failures as individuals, even our failures as our church as a church, and I would say, I would go so far as to say, especially our failures, all of the ways that our faith and our fortitude and our faithfulness fall so very short. All of those things ought to redirect our attention once more to that most fearless of warriors who for the joy that was set before him endured even the cross, despised the shame, and is seated now the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Because he wholly followed the Lord and he fearlessly fought our battle on our behalf. And in him, in Christ, you have obtained an inheritance, maybe not so much the way that Caleb did, but maybe the more the way the people of Judah did. The people of Judah obtained their inheritance through the faithful leadership of this great hero of the faith Caleb. I want to see I want you to see here in these chapters tonight that you can trust him. you can trust your warrior and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can count on him and you can take him at his word and you can follow him. You can carry out the mission that he has given to you because it is ultimately his mission. There's a war that he is waging. And it's success. And your victory hangs not on your failing faithfulness, but on his perfect faithfulness. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who wholly followed the Lord and has fought our battle on our behalf. And we pray that you would give us strength by this Holy Spirit. You have given to us as the guarantee of our inheritance to follow him faithfully with fortitude because he goes before us. And his is the victory. We pray this in his name. Amen.